Powered by Clear Vision Development Group, this is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leader's podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone. This is Better Than Before. Our one clear objective is to help leaders and business people become better than before. So each week, we provide some news and some tips, maybe a special stat. We typically have a a guest on with an interesting topic, and we're going to talk about workplace mental health this week. And our special guest, Julie Holden, is going to be joining us. She's on the line, and she's in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and she'll be on the show with us. And I'm going to talk about the difference between teams and committees coming up in today's show. Since it's the Christmas shopping season, Chief Producer Bill, Yes, it is. And uh, I'm sure that not everybody spent all their money last week on Black Friday and Small Business Saturday and Super Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Is it Cyber Monday? Which would have been yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people have some funds left over to spend for Christmas. And do I have a deal for you? If you go to the Clear Vision Development website at clearvisiondevelopment.com, you can do a digital download of two posters. They're leadership posters of frameworks that I developed when coaching clients. One of them is called 10 Decisions Leaders Make Daily, which are the 10 decisions that I feel that leaders have to focus on making in a very uh, intentional and decisive manner in order to be successful. And the other one is called 10 Things Leaders Can't Do. So many times employees and followers and constituents think that leaders can do everything. The leaders are the answer to everything. And there are at least 10 things that leaders can't do. And I have those uh, in a framework on a poster. And you can download these posters for your own wall or for that special leader in your life that you think you need a pretty nice gift for, for just 99 cents. Nice. Less than a dollar. We've got these two outstanding leadership posters that are on our website and uh, you go to the shop and you can get those for 99 cents. And I think you will uh, enjoy them. And I know that whoever is on your list who likes leadership would enjoy them hanging in their office. So one thing that I want to talk about today kicking off the show is there's a little war going on between Facebook and Apple. There's evidence that's accumulating. And you know, Facebook has had this problem that's a little bit of a PR problem over the last year or so with identity and sharing database information about users and things like that. I guess evidence is mounting that Facebook's power could, could, mind you, be exploited to disrupt elections, broadcast viral propaganda, and inspire deadly campaigns of hate around the globe. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg stumbled the New York Times says, based on interviews with more than 50 people. Bent on growing the company, the two ignored warning signs and then sought to conceal them from public view. 
At critical moments over the last three years, they were distracted by personal projects and passed off security and policy decisions to subordinates, according to current and former executives. Now the plot thickens. So they've been criticized about their privacy controls by the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook. And evidently, these criticisms uh, has really infuriated Mr. Zuckerberg. So now Mark Zuckerberg has ordered all of his management team at Facebook to only use Android phones, arguing that the operating system had far more users than Apple's. <laughs> so he's getting a few jabs in. Yeah, well, he's denying access to iPhones because he's mad. When Sandberg testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee last September, she spread neatly handwritten notes on the table in front of her, the names of each senator on the committee, their pet questions and concerns, and a reminder to tell them thank you. In large letters on one of her notes, it said, slow, pause, determined. Hey, it works. I've written things in my journal when I've gone into meetings uh, in large letters. You know, don't go first, those kinds of things. Because sometimes when you have a certain motivation and wiring, you want to jump right in. And sure. sometimes it's better if you listen and, instead of talking. So here's another one. Uh, how you view the economy, of course, is your perception. And one media outlet views the economy as half full. And another media outlet views it as half empty. Bill is shaking his head. Yeah, I read that all the time. Bloomberg says a strong U.S. economy will boost global growth in 2019. According to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the global economy is on track to grow a healthy 3.7% in 2018 and 2019. The contrast between the negative daily buzz and positive underlying fundamental conditions is sharpest in the United States where expansion of the world's largest economy has actually strengthened as it has lengthened. The Wall Street Journal takes a different view. They say global economic slowdown deepens. <laughs> the global economy has hit a soft patch, putting the United States' robust growth at risk should the slowdown persist, China, Japan, and Germany show signs of stress posing a risk to the United States should these trends persist. Okay, well, there's the media, folks. Mm -hmm. One's got a positive perception spin, and one has a negative perception spin. And as always, I advise you to educate yourself to find out on your own what is really happening rather than relying on someone else to inform you. I would agree with that. So that's kind of what I had for news. And uh, then my interesting stat of the day. Oh, yeah, right. Prospective college students like elite colleges better on cloudy days. <laughs> <laughs> a one standard deviation increase in cloud cover on the day of a prospective student's visit to an elite university was associated with a nine percentage point increase in the probability that the student would enroll. This is in, according to Yuri Simonson of the Wharton School of Business. In a study of 1,284 prospective students, Simonson found evidence that cloudy weather, cloudy weather, 
makes academic activities more appealing and increases the desirability of attending an academically challenging institution. Huh. So there you go. Have all your enrollment recruiting on cloudy days. Stat of the day, prospective students like elite colleges better on cloudy days. <laughs> Wanted to talk about the stock market a little bit. We're still in the midst of a correction. Bill has come with some of his ideas uh, about stocks that he likes and what he's currently thinking about in his investing. But before we have that conversation, I need to tell you that this is a conversation between Mr. Foster and myself, and it's only what we are doing in our stock portfolios. And we do not recommend this as advice for anyone. You need to do your own homework. I would agree with that. Well, uh, I'll jump in with Realty Income Corporation. And the reason why I love this stock so much is that it pays a monthly dividend. Currently, it sits a little over $0.22 cents per share. And I think uh, I have realty income myself. And yes, the dividend every month is nice. And if I remember correctly, they manage properties. So they have all kinds of uh, industrial and commercial properties that they manage all over the United States. They're a real estate investment trust, a REIT. And so they pay out excesses to stockholders. Correct. And it's not much of a growth stock per se, but um, it, it sure is a nice little uh, money-making stock. Yeah, you, you invest in that particular stock. So depending on your strategy. So some of the strategies are value appreciation. So you want a value stock. You want a growth stock. You want an income stock. And this is definitely an income stock. Let's say you put $3,000 into it. A return on that $3,000 is not going to come from the stock growing. It's going to come from the monthly income you get from it. Right, through the dividend. Yep. What else you got? Well, this one isn't an actual stock. This one is a uh, mutual fund. Oh, okay. Um, it's the Fidelity 500 Index Fund, which uh, trades under FXAIX. And it's one that I like a lot because it, it uh, follows the uh, stock market trends. And it, um, on average, grows a little over 10.5% per year. So depending on what media outlet you want to believe, if you believe Bloomberg that the economy is going to continue to grow into uh, 2019, and of course the economy and the stock market are two different things. They're not the same thing. However, a strong economy usually means that the stock market is going to continue to grow in appreciation. They're usually going to grow in tandem with each other. Right. If you believe that to be true, this is the kind of thing you would want to buy because it's going to go with the market. Right. And I mention it now because the market overall is almost about where it started. It's only 3% above where it started the year. Yeah. Now's a really good time to buy it, I think. Right. So now while we're in this correction, it's a good buying opportunity. Exactly. It also pays a quarterly dividend, but that one fluctuates depending on how well the market's doing. Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive. Like when the market goes down a lot, most people think about selling. Mm -hmm. um, but you and I are more long-term hold investors. Right. So for us, we're like, oh man, it's on sale, right? It's <laughs> exactly. time, time to buy. Yeah, and it's a low-cost mutual fund, too, because it's not heavily managed. You know, it's a solid performer. It's one of those deals where you buy it, and if you know you're not going to retire in a while, you know, that's what I'm, I'm doing with my stocks. I'm, I'm building a, a portfolio for retirement. Yeah. And if you know you're not going to retire in a while, you, you just let this thing do, it, do its deal. 
And Warren Buffett, who's one of the people we pay attention to because he's a long hold investor, mm-hmm. he always says that if you buy the S&P 500, which is what this tracks, yes, um, you will be better off than buying individual stocks. Because he made this big bet, this 10-year bet with all these hedge funds that they could pick any combination of stocks they wanted over a 10-year period. And he would just buy the tracker like you're talking about. Right. And he would always do better. And he blew them away every single time. <laughs> right. And for me, you know, it's one of those deals where you, you buy it and then you just don't have to think about it anymore. I'll share. I've only got two strategies that, that I'm kind of engaged in right now. And one of them is I sold all my General Electric. Yeah, I wish I had done that when you did it. When it got to $13, uh, I had already lost a little cash on that because I'd been holding it since about 13 or $14. And it got all the way up to just about 30 uh, at one point, which was looking good. And then we had all this uh, turmoil. And it's gone down to almost like as as of today, it might be about eight dollars. Eight dollars and fifty three cents, I believe, is the last I saw. Yeah, and so I sold out of all my holdings in GE, which was a little painful because I had some red. But I thought, what's the best way for me to get that money back? Hold it and wait for GE to come around, which it will, folks. It will come around. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happened with GE that I was fortunate on is um, they cut their dividend to one penny. So they are only paying a cent on their dividend. So I was glad that I decided to get out of it. And then I immediately took that money and bought Amazon. I was not able, unfortunately, to buy as much because Amazon at the time when I bought it was at about $1,500 a stock. Mm. And I remember when I first thought about buying Amazon about two years ago, it was $300. But it recently reached $2,000 a a stock. I'm betting on the fact that Amazon is still going to be a growth stock. Mm -hmm. And it's going to grow over the next three or four years. And that's going to be a lot faster way to get my money back than staying with GE. Yeah, I agree with that strategy. So then the second one is uh, I'm going to buy some Altria. And uh, Altria is a cigarette company. You know, I know smoking is not good for you, okay? So, you know, it becomes a dilemma then. Are you investing in something that hurts people? Well, people are going to smoke, and it's their decision, not mine, right? So I'm just investing strictly in the company. It pays an 80-cent dividend. That's fantastic. And so um, it pays out in January, April, July, and October. And so I needed another stock in those months to keep my dividend income about level. So I'm going to initiate a position in Altra here in the next couple of weeks. So what is it trading for right now? Uh, About 60 bucks. So that's a really good um, dividend. Yeah. 80 cents on 60 bucks per share. Fantastic. So pretty good PE. I mean, the tobacco business is pretty strong, always has been strong, probably always will be. Right. Uh, because people are going to uh, demand the product, and that's what it's all about. That's what free market's all about is, you know, if people want to buy something, you let the market decide the value and also whether or not people stay in business. So those are the two strategies I'm thinking about right now. 
So if you're thinking about, we're just trying to pass along some stuff that we do. We're not financial advisors. We're not giving professional advice. We're just a couple of home gamers. <laughs> you know, part of this podcast's mission is to talk about business. And so these are some businesses and some strategies that we think are pretty good for our own deal. And we get in there and do research ourselves to try to figure these uh, strategies out and look at these companies to see how profitable they are. And the same business fundamentals that we coach business owners and CEOs on, we're looking for in these companies because we invest in them over the long term. And if they're healthy, they will continue to be healthy over the long term, which is why I got out of GE. It's just not real healthy right now. Julie Holden is my special guest today. She's going to be joining us on the line from Canada coming up next. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. And right now, when you get a new Subaru during the Share the Love event, Subaru will donate $250 to a charity in need. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. Hi, I'm Dave Drain. And I'm Dan Burks. And we're the owners of University Subaru. As a locally owned business, we care for our community. We know how important it is to give back because this is our home. During the Subaru Share the Love event, get a new vehicle and Subaru will donate $250 to those in need. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. From here. Been here. And we will always be here for you. Subaru will donate $250 to purchaser or lessee selected national and hometown charities. See retailer or Subaru.com slash share for details. Are you working twice as hard, but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished, but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control, but that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to our show. I've got a special guest with us today on the line. Our first international guest on Better Than Before, Julie Holden, is with us today. And she has an extensive background of over 25 years delivering benefit solutions to her clients in both the insurance and consulting industries. Julie was a principal at one of Canada's largest consulting firms where she led its health and productivity practice in Ontario. Previously, she has led two of Canada's largest insurer disability claims operation, and she brings her frontline perspective to clients as well as the right approach to the table and delivers excellent customer service and is a graduate of the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. She was a contributor to the 14th edition of the Handbook of Canadian Pension and Benefit Plans and is heavily sought after for speaking and writing engagements on topics relating to workplace health and productivity. And that's what I want to talk to Julie about today. Julie, welcome to Better Than Before. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yes. And tell me once again where you live. I'm in uh, Oakville, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto. 
Okay, wonderful. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about is on last week's show, Chief Producer Bill and I were giving a little history of Thanksgiving, and we talked about how Canada has a Thanksgiving holiday, and we've gotten some feedback from some of our listeners. They didn't know that. And so when does your Thanksgiving in Canada happen? Yeah, Thanksgiving Day falls on um, the second Monday in October every year. So we, we just had ours last week. And so I'm curious, what, what are your Thanksgiving traditions in Canada? They're very similar to yours, actually. So we have turkey. Some people will have a ham or something like that, but uh, very similar. And, you know, pumpkin pie for dessert. And, uh, you know, relatives and friends come and gather around the table. And, you know, we give thanks for the bounty and, you know, the wonderful things in our lives. It's actually very similar to yours. So does all does all the crazy shopping season start after yours like it does ours or Well because ours is a little earlier our Christmas shopping or our holiday shopping starts right after Halloween actually just after the stores still have the Halloween things on the shelf out comes all the other holiday decorating So instead of Black Friday you have Orange Friday or something <laughs> <laughs> Well listen I wanted to have you on cuz uh, I want to talk to you about mental health in the workplace and you are the expert, especially in Canada, on this subject. So how big a problem is workplace mental health, and why are we so concerned about it this, these days? Yeah, well, it is a global issue. Uh, certainly it's significant in Canada. I did a bit more research on uh, the U.S., and the amount of money companies are spending on mental health is really increasing rapidly and the the annual costs are increasing twice as fast as all other medical expenses. I'll give you a number. Um, it's, it's quite staggering. Mental Health America conducted a study called Mind the Workplace, released the results in October of 2017, so last year, and in it they estimate workplace mental health is costing employers 500 billion dollars in lost productivity annually. So it's really a significant problem couple other just quick stats, employees with mental illness submit up to four times as many medical claims, and people suffering with depression submit on average around $15,000 a year in claims compared to almost 6000 for the, the general population. So, you know, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of statistics. I mean, I, I, won't, I won't go on about all the statistics, but I mean, $500 billion in lost productivity just sort of says it all there. Willis Towers Watson, which I know is a big um, consulting firm in the U.S., it's also big here, they just um, conducted a study, and in it, almost 60% of employers plan on making workplace mental health a priority over the next three years uh, because they are seeing all of these increases. And they're seeing you know, people suffering at work, so they want to do the right thing, which is great. Yeah, a lot of our clients buy a lot of Towers and Watts and compensation. They they provide a lot of really good data. And I, I've noticed over the last couple of years one statistic that's alarming, and I can't quote the statistic, but there is an incredible rise of heart attacks at work. And so my question for you is, can we locate where all the stress is coming from in the workplace? The leading causes are, I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of simple things, but um, they keep sort of getting away from us. They're things like um, workloads that are too high. 
inflexibility at the workplace. It could be somebody that needs to work, you know, different hours or work from home or just have just different flexibility in the workplace and sometimes it's not available to them. Lack of training on new systems and tools. And again, you know, organizations, um, you know, are trying to streamline and make things more efficient all the time. So they'll roll out a new system and they'll do some training. But unfortunately, a lot of employees feel that it's not enough and they get really stressed. Um, it's just not working for them. So that that causes a lot of stress. Not enough resources, uh, you know, again, with, you know, right sizing or, you know, downsizing, you know, streamlining all these different terms all these things that organizations do to become more efficient and, you know, get better financial results impacts employees in different ways. So they don't have enough resources sometimes. They've maybe cut out a role or two. And that plays on uh, employees' uh, stress. So listening to some of your talks and reading some of your writings on the subject, how does stigma affect it? Yes, there have been gains around uh, stigma, but unfortunately, it's still a huge issue. Many employees report that they wouldn't tell a colleague or their manager if they were suffering, you know, with a mental illness, uh, which is too bad. Um, They're concerned about what people will think of them, and they're concerned about how it might impact their job and their career. So they don't tell anyone. It also interferes with people getting treatment, you know, because they're not disclosing to people. They're keeping it to themselves and trying to just sort of struggle through, uh, which is really sad. 80% of people that go for treatment for mental illness actually recover. So if people can get the help they need, they can be healthy again and uh, lead a productive life, including work. I understand, you know, I, about the stigma and, and worry and this, that, and the other. I suppose step one is recognizing I might have an issue. What What are the, you know, how do I know fairly quickly if I'm in that zone where I need some help? Yeah, well, it's actually really good for employers to provide um, a health risk assessment tool for people to go online and answer a bunch of questions. I mean, there's ones that are specific to mental health. So giving employees uh, an opportunity to go in and answer questions and see how they're doing around their mental health is really good. So some of the things they might feel, though, if you're an employee is, you know, inability to concentrate not getting your work done, like starting to miss deadlines when you used to be able to focus and, you know, get a certain amount of work done in a day and suddenly you're just not, just feeling high anxiety and nervousness, those kinds of things. And and so do people think sometimes, I mean, I know um, maybe the, the uh, older generations might be more of, this is just something I need to work through. Like this is just a phase Um, maybe I'm just having a bad week or something like that. So they delay, um, getting some treatment or help or something. They just try to work their way through it. It is. And that's, that's actually self-stigmatizing. You know, we've got people stigmatizing us from the outside, but when we start thinking like that, we're actually self-stigmatizing and it's, Again, unfortunate because uh, people can get better if they'll if they'll go for help. But yeah, it is it's sort of that buck up, just get through it, you know, pull your socks up type <laughs> attitude. And um, it's not good for people. They don't get better, you know. Usually that way, they struggle through and they don't feel well. We forget sometimes, like we're made up of physical health and mental health, and people. In the workplace, employers have done a great job, especially in the last you know decade or so, 
uh, working on uh, physical programs for people, but we also want to help people with their mental health and educating them and giving them training around that. We want them to say, okay, no, actually, I'm not feeling very well. And it's okay. It's okay for me to talk to someone and it's okay for me to go get help and maybe, you know, have my work adjusted in a certain way and ask for an accommodation. It's all okay. And then I'll, I'll feel better. So I'd like to introduce this topic uh, to some of the CEOs and their executive teams that I coach. Help me here with the leadership's role regarding uh, dealing with mental health with employees. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the main thing leaders can do is really embed mental health into the culture, make it a business priority. It doesn't have to be a monumental initiative either, and organizations don't have to put a huge budget against it. They can build it over time. I mean, one of the simple things to start is just by sending a message to the staff about a commitment to workplace mental health. Also, leaders who share their own stories has a wonderful impact. Uh, when they start opening up, it's amazing what happens in a workplace. Having leaders trained at all levels on how to identify someone who's struggling at work and help them, like know how to identify it and then help them, um, is a, these are all great first steps. So aside from... Uh things from an initiative or project-type uh, approach. What are some things that employers could do to maybe reduce the stress level in the workplace or help employees uh, who might be showing signs of struggling with a mental uh, health issue or a mental health illness? What are some practical-type things they can do to help that? Well, one of the first things I would do is conduct a survey of the employees around mental health in the workplace because that will help to inform next steps. The survey, uh, can it will get at things like stigma. It will identify what's really causing stress in their particular workplace because before you know, you know, really what's causing them stress in your workplace, you know, you don't know exactly what, what programs or policies you should implement or what things you should do. So some employers like to do an online knowledge um, survey. Others like to, uh, depending on the workplace, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, spread out across the country or whether it's just in, in one, one place, they might want to do um, employee forums where they sit down and chat about it. One of the first steps really is to start the conversation, just to start talking about it so that people can understand that they can talk about it as well. So if you think back over the clients that you've helped over the last few years, um, of course, without divulging identities or company names or anything like that, can you sort of give me an overview of a really strong success story? Um, somebody that you worked with where the situation was not good at all and they put some things in place and it really, really made things better for the employees? Sure. Yeah. Um, cause it's so nice to talk about success stories. So I was working with, a with an organization, a manufacturer, and, um, they had a few different sites. They were experiencing a lot of turnover reports of people uh, talking about high stress situations, uh, people leaving and, um, uh, going off on disability as well. So it was really impacting this organization's productivity. Uh, the first thing we did was the uh, knowledge survey. This is something that that I have that that organizations uh, like to utilize. So we did that in this this situation. 
And through that, we were able to identify the top drivers of um, what was causing stress in the workplace and also identify some opportunities for training. So, um, so after the survey, you know, we also communicated the results of the survey to the, to the organization so that they could be involved and they could see what was, you know, things were being done um, and, and that they were being heard. Some of the things that came out of this survey were these opportunities for training and also uh, the people didn't feel recognized. It's very important for people to feel recognized for the work that they're doing. So in any event, we took this information and we put together some training modules First for people managers and then for all employees, um, because we wanted everyone to have a, a good understanding of mental health and how it can impact the workplace and how employees can work with their employer, in this case, the manufacturer, um, around uh, what, can, what can be made better for them and how, how people can be accommodated at work. They reviewed workloads. They re reviewed scheduling because scheduling was an issue. They did a lot of training with their people managers um, so that they could change some of their behaviors. A couple of different policies were put in place, like um, harassment policy and respect in the workplace policy. So these types of things. And we you know, have been working on this for a couple of years, and there's been a tremendous amount of growth. Things are turning around, and, and it's uh, just a much better place for people to work today. Yeah, you mentioned uh, turnover, which is very expensive. You mentioned lower disability payouts. Uh, you mentioned uh, some efficiencies and things like that. Are there any other advantages that employers can gain from taking action on this really important item? Well, it really impacts health claims over time as well. I think I mentioned at the outset that, you know, for example, someone with depression uh, puts in on average almost $15,000 in claims, uh, whereas someone in the general population who doesn't have a mental health issue or depression in particular puts in um, less than half of that, like almost 6000 So over time, the health claims will come down as well. The, the expenses for absence, disabilities, health claims, you know, turnover, um, a whole host of things. Um, and ca I mean, this, this is also casual absence, the people that are off a day here or a day there. I think I saw a statistic actually that folks have up to 21 days on average absence if they have a mental health uh, issue in, in the U.S., uh, which is huge. So all of these things combined really add up to a lot of money and a lot of uh, lost productivity. So turning it around, of course, uh, helps employers save on all of that. Workplace mental health is not only a, a financial uh, cost, it's a legal risk. So it's a risk for litigation and, you know, things like um, here in Canada, we have human rights complaints. I'm not sure what it's called there, but probably something similar. All of these things is impacted by workplace mental health. My special guest today is Julie Holden, and she has been educating us on workplace mental health and productivity. And uh, Julie, I've got a couple of rapid fire questions uh, to pitch at you uh, that we use with every guest on the show. And so I'll pitch it to you and you answer off the top of your head. Are you ready? Yes, I think so. Okay. <laughs> Number one question, best memory that immediately comes to mind for Julie? Well, the best recent memory is uh, a trip to Tofino on Vancouver Island this past summer. We rented a cottage and by the ocean and our daughters, our grown daughters that live out there came and stayed with us. So it was absolutely wonderful. Number one hero in your life? 
Well, generally speaking, I don't know if I can pinpoint one, but people who go out of their way to help others, especially, you know, vulnerable people. I really admire that. Top value you subscribe to? Well, integrity and honesty. Most important person in your life? <laughs> that would be my husband, Alex. He works for a bank in uh, Canada, outside of uh, Toronto as well. Do you and Alex have any children? Yeah, we have uh, we have grown kids. We have three, two daughters and one uh, son. I see. And do they have children? Well, one does, yes. <laughs> Granddaughter that's 12. That's awesome. I know. So your favorite thing in the whole world? It's going to sound funny. Um, my espresso maker, because I, I love espresso in the morning. What's your favorite food? Well, I'm a foodie, uh, so it's kind of hard. Um, but I'd have to say Indian food. I just love the flavors and textures and, you know, scents and everything, how it all combines the flavors. Most beautiful place you've ever been to? That is hard. Um, Cape Breton is absolutely stunning. And, and we were there this past summer um, as well. These are two places in Canada I do love outside of Canada as well. And I've been to the U.S., which is absolutely beautiful, too. We were staying um, at a cottage up on a cliff overlooking the ocean in Cape Breton, and, and uh, it was just beautiful. If you could describe success in one word, what would that word be? One word. Um, believe. Okay. How do you want to be remembered? As someone who's, I guess, kind and thoughtful um, and someone who is trying to move forward the agenda on workplace mental health. Advice for a younger Julie. <laughs> Be patient. You weren't impatient when you were younger, were you? <laughs> well. Cer certainly you've grown. <laughs> I, I have. I have grown. <laughs> What's your favorite sound? Um, our cat, Gracie. Uh, I love it when she talks. She has her own vocabulary and I love listening to her talk to us. That's awesome. You only have the one pet? Yes, okay. we do. Gracie the cat. And finally, last question. What's the best lesson you've learned? Well, it probably goes back to not being uh, impatient. Not everyone sees the same things as important or their timing may be different than mine. Uh, everyone has different priorities. So I've learned to respect that and work with that. So that's, that's you know, been a, a good lesson for me. Not that I was extremely impatient. I was just, you know, I would like to move forward with certain things. And sometimes, uh, like I said, people are on different uh, times and things like that. Well, Julie, you are a dear friend. I hope we get to work on a project together someday. I really appreciate you being on the show. Tell everybody how to find you and how to contact you if they're interested in finding out more about this important subject. Well, thanks, Tony. And I, I hope we do get a chance to work on a project. I'd love to. If they want to email me, I'm at julie at holdenassociatesconsulting.com. And if they want to check out my website, I'm at holdenassociatesconsulting.com. And my phone number is 647-455-2393. Wonderful. Julie Holden uh, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and uh, has really done a good job of it, really explaining to us and teaching us about the importance of workplace health, how it affects uh, company finances, how it affects company productivity, and uh, just a fascinating subject. And so, so glad to have her on today. I'm going to talk about the difference between teams and committees coming up next on Better Than Before. Hi, I'm Dave Drain. And I'm Dan Burks. And we're the owners of University Subaru. As a locally owned business, we care for our community. We know how important it is to give back because this is our home. During the Subaru Share the Love event, get a new vehicle and Subaru will donate $250 to those in need. University Subaru. 
your truly locally owned dealer. From here, been here, and we will always be here for you. Subaru will donate $250 to purchaser or lessee selected national and hometown charities. See retailer or Subaru.com slash share for details. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. This is Tony Richards, your host. And today I want to spend a little bit of time talking about teams. Teamwork is a huge buzzword, of course. When you talk to uh, leaders, they always talk about, well, we're a team here, or we want to be a team, or what we really are trying to do is increase teamwork. For me, that's one of the most overused and misused words in the whole leadership vocabulary especially when you're talking about organizations. When people use the word teamwork, a lot of times it's just misused. And I've got a couple of reasons for that. First of all, most organizations don't have teams at all. They have committees. So what's the difference, you ask? Well, a true team wins or loses together. So in other words, when the St. Louis Cardinals or the Kansas City Royals, depending on your loyalty, When they go to the World Series, the whole team goes. When they lose and don't go to the World Series, nobody goes. So team members are in a place where they win or lose together. You want to create this environment where team members share information and they do it willingly and they share resources and they do it willingly. You put people in a position where they cannot succeed in the team if one of their teammates stumbles or fails. If two departments are truly teaming up, then they both should get paid bonuses in the same amount or both don't get bonuses at all as business units and individual rewards can differ. So if you want true alignment and true teamwork between two business units or two departments, You have to incentivize them on exactly the same things and put them in a position where they have to work together. But if they're in a position where they don't have to work together and one can win while the other loses, that's not really teamwork. That's a committee, which is far more common in business. There are people who come together either willingly or having been appointed or having been ordered to do so for the sake of furthering a project, an initiative, or a business goal. However, they compromise members who are basically looking out for themselves. If sales can succeed no matter what the production team does, then sales will attempt to do that and vice versa. They don't really have to work together as a team. In committees, unfortunately, I can win while you lose. We may or may not share resources, and my only true loyalty is to me and my area of the company. In teams, we share and share alike. We make it or break it together, and my allegiance is to the team and the whole company. All people involved participating individually and as a group 
while being compensated in different manners and amounts is a true team configuration. Over the last 30 years of being involved in organizational activity, my experience would say that I've encountered about an 80-20 ratio of committees rather than teams. About 80% of the time, I see committees and silos and not teams. Committees are not awful. They're more like teams gone bad. I've often heard camels or horses designed by committees. Which brings us to the subject of alignment. True teams are in alignment with each other. It's a function of individual choices and individual capabilities. Teamwork and alignment always come back to the decisions and actions of individual people. In a team that's aligned, one of the individuals involved have come to agreement to own every decision and be committed to making the decisions and each other successful. The counter to this is found in the government sector, unfortunately, in which absolutely no alignment exists, even among those who claim to be of the same party and the same ideology. No individual can be forced to authentically align with each other. It has to happen inside each heart as an act of will. If you have the individual capability to place yourself in alignment and stay there, and you're part of a team that has agreed to be an aligned team, then you will do whatever you have to do to get in alignment. You will self-adjust to get into alignment. This is where the really tough part of being on a true team comes in, really. If you're aligned with every decision, it means you agree to align with decisions even when you don't really agree with them. In other words, you have decided that you disagree, but you're still totally committed. You decide to step off the agree, don't agree, right, wrong paradigm and choose to align regardless of where you happen to fall relative to it. You can be absolutely certain that the decision is wrong, but you have agreed to be in alignment, so you have to do your best to support it and carry it out. How hard is this? Absolutely difficult. To be able to transcend your notion of agreement and disagreement, to be able to move into a position of alignment is difficult for most people because we're not used to letting go of our points of view or our personal notions of the best course of action or our own ideas and plans. I'm not talking about sacrificing your values or your ethics. If a decision is reached that breaches your values or ethics, you absolutely owe it to yourself and your team to let them know you can't sign off or align with that. There may be consequences to that, but they will not be as bad as you allowing your values or ethics to be compromised. Someone at Enron should have said, no, I'm not doing that. Outside of values and ethics exemptions, though, alignment is achieved when everyone's pulling in the same direction as a team. When someone says yes to a decision in a meeting, they really mean yes. If behaviors are observed later, which are counter to the commitment in the yes implied, then someone on the team will address those behaviors openly. Every team member wants to make the decision work, and each member supports the other members. Members cannot have their own agendas. Success is not guaranteed, but I promise the odds are stacked more in your favor on teams. Having the power of a team of people rather than a committee of people all pulling in the same direction cannot be overestimated or overstated. Now, here's the key question. Do you think you can do it? That's my talk today on the difference between teams 
and committees. This is Tony Richards. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Better Than Before can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and most places that you can go out and find podcasts. We'd love to have you as a subscriber, and I would also love it if you gave us a five-star review in the star rating system because our goal is to get 50 five-star reviews by the end of the year, and here it is, late November, so we don't have that much more time to go. So please help us out if you're enjoying our show. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. And right now, when you get a new Subaru during the Share the Love event, Subaru will donate $250 to a charity in need. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. Our chief producer is Bill Foster, and our associate producer is Whitney Coker. I'm your host, Tony Richards, reminding you until I talk to you again that everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.